The sermon text today is from Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. I mean, on a day like Easter, I think it's important to ask, you know, is it really that significant that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? I mean, we have his teaching, we know his life. Is it really, does it matter that much to fight for this idea that he actually rose from the dead? Uh, many people think so. I mean, C.S. Lewis would be one. He said that uh, if Christianity is false, then it is of no importance at all. If Christianity is true, it is of infinite importance. And if, but the one thing you cannot say is that it is of moderate importance. You know, the, the reason that it's so significant to decide, did he in fact come out of the grave or not, is because death renders all things meaningless. I mean, ultimately, death is the great barrier that we cannot get over. No one ever has. Luke Ferry is a... He is a French philosopher, wrote a book on philosophy, which is probably where he needs to be. Uh, but he, he argues that, that the invention of philosophy, the pursuit of knowledge, is to try to deal with this problem. What do we do with death? How do we handle it? How can we live in light of it? Death causes people to despair. Leo Tolstoy, in his book, A Confession, he gives these words, he says, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man, a question without answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does, does not destroy? That's the question we have. If there is no resurrection, that one, what meaning or value can we have in life? I think intuitively we all want it to be true. We all want to believe that there is something. I mean, that, that's, Hollywood has had a commercial bonanza over making movies that are 
that are always the, the good winning and, and evil being defeated and love triumphing over hate and so on. I think we want it to be true. You know, you realize that more people will come to church on Sunday morning than will watch the Super Bowl. Why? I think they want to hear, is it true? Is there life after death? Is there, has death really been defeated? So we have this passage in Luke, Luke, the first 12 verses. What I want to do is just look at the facts of this resurrection. Just, just look at what does it report? You know, what do we know about what these disciples saw? And then we're going to look at uh, the responses, because there are really three responses. I mean, you have the women, you have the disciples, and you have Peter, three different responses. And then I want to just tease out some of the implications of if it is true, so what? What do you do with it? So first, the facts. Here's what we know. You see in the first couple of verses that Mary and, and uh, Mary, mother of James and Joanna, uh, they're identified later on, but we know that they're the ones that got up early in the morning to go to the tomb. They left early. John's Gospel says that it was dark. Now, we know that they weren't going to see if the resurrection isn't, was true. We know that they weren't going just to check things out. Maybe he did rise from the dead. No, they were going to anoint the body. They had seen him die. They had seen him get buried, and they expected him to stay that way. Uh, it says that they even went with spices to complete that funeral rite. So they weren't expecting him to be raised. But when they get there, we see that the stone was rolled away. And that stone is like a circular, it's like a disc. And it was often rolled down a track to cover the opening of a tomb so as to protect the contents of the tomb from being tampered with or being robbed. Well, of course, when they get there, they see the tomb, the stone had been rolled back. That's really the first hint that something is amiss. So, so they see the, the stone rolled back, and these women went into the tomb to see. And, of course, they found no body. They found the grave clothes, the, those linen strips wrapped around the body as part of the funeral process, but they didn't find any body at all. Now, now, it says they were perplexed. Of course they were. I mean, that, that, that word means really confused or even troubled. You can imagine, you, you come in deep despair, the, the one that you thought was your leader, you loved him, you respected him, you followed him, and he's dead. And then you go and, and you try to perform the last act of graciousness upon his body that you can, and he's not even there. Well, it's then that these two men appear. Now, we know they're not men. You find that later on in the chapter. They're angels, but we already know it because of their shining appearance. And that word was used uh, when, when it represented or it described the brilliance of Jesus at the transfiguration. So they fell to the ground. Of course they did. They bowed down. What else do you do? Whenever heavenly beings come into contact with divine beings in Scripture, there tends to be this immediate humbling, dropping to the ground. You know you're in the presence of something radical out of our box. And so they drop to the ground. And this is when, this is when the angels ask, what do you look, why are you seeking the living from among the dead? I mean, talk about a show-stopping question. W what are you doing looking for the living? In other words, they're asking, what are you doing here? Tombs are for dead people. Cemeteries are for, for, for the final, the end, death, no more. And yet they're there. And they're asking why. And then they go on and they say, didn't he tell you? Don't you remember? 
There's an implicit admonishment here, I think. Don't you remember that he said he had to die and after being crucified, he was going to be raised. Three different times in Luke 8 and 9 and 17, Jesus had said these things. And of course it says in 8 and 9, then they remembered. Then they remembered. And then they departed to tell the disciples. But, but let, me, let me point out something to you. The evidence of the resurrection is an empty tomb. There was no body. Nobody saw the resurrection. You can't find a description of the resurrection anywhere. Nobody saw it. The evidence we have is an empty tomb, but th there's more there than you think. So you ha let me just stop. Before I look at the responses, uh, do you see what's happening here? There's kind of a, uh, there's a difference between knowing the faith and really believing. There's a difference between hearing truth and really believing truth. You know, these women had heard the truth from the mouth of Jesus himself. They had heard it, but they didn't believe it. They didn't live in light of it. Uh, it's the same thing with us. I, I, I mean, we know many things. We believe many things, right? Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Your heavenly Father knows you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. And yet we worry about what we're going to eat. We worry about what we're going to wear. We worry about our futures. Uh, you know, it's like our lives betray our knowledge. You know, we know these things, but, but our lives seem to betray that which we know. J.C. Raw was an Anglican bishop of the previous century, and he said this. He says, we hear the truths of God, but we don't use the truths of God. So, so we know these things, but we don't live in light of them. Is this the case with you in the resurrection? Is the resurrection for you more of a, a metaphor? Or maybe a happy ending at the end? Or maybe a theory? You know, the resurrection is to transform us. It's to cause us to have a joy in the midst of pain. It's to cause us to have a faith in the midst of adversity. It's to cause us to be, to be strong and valiant, even in times where others are buckling at the knee. It's supposed to have that effect on us, that every Sunday is a resurrection, not just one. And yet oftentimes we look at it as almost a theory. It's almost a, a metaphor for life. Well, I pray at the end of this service that it won't be that way for you. I, I, I pray that it would be something of greater significance that you're going to be considering over and over. Uh, well, that's the facts. There's an empty tomb. We don't have a body. That's what we see here. Okay, let's look at the different responses, right? You have the, you have the women. So you have Mary, a couple Marys, you have a Joanna, and it seems to imply that there may have been other women as well. They go to the tomb. They're doing the heavy lifting. I mean, these ladies are there. The guys are in Jerusalem. I don't know what they're doing. The ladies are there doing the hard work. Now, they went there not believing. Obviously, they did not believe because they're taking the spices. And they meet the angel and of course, the angel reminds him of what Jesus said. But notice in your verse, in your Bibles, because in 8 and 9, it says, and then they remembered. In other words, it wasn't seeing the angel. It wasn't seeing this really cool event that changed them. It says they believed his words. They remembered his words. These women were convicted of the truth of his resurrection because he said he would be raised and the empty tomb. It wasn't the, the miraculous event of two dazzling angels before you. They believed the words of Jesus. This is what faith is. Faith isn't some cognitive awareness or understanding. It's a trust. It's a dependence. 
It's a submission. It's an obedience to all that he is and all that he says. That's how we know we have faith. So you have these women, they believe. Well, they're compared to the disciples that they go run to, right? They go see the 11, that is the 12 less Judas. He had committed suicide. And they begin to report everything. Well, how did they respond? Now, these were the men who lived with Jesus. They heard his teaching. They saw his miracles. They saw his compassion. And when the women report everything, what's it say? They said, it seemed to them an idle tale. An idle tale. That, that, that little word, this idle tale, um, it's used in other sources, even in medical reports, to describe people that are just talking nonsense. They're talking like people in hysteria or in delirium. In other words, these men paid no attention. It made no sense to them. They, they didn't believe it at all. Now, sadly, during this time and culture, women were not highly regarded for their intelligence. They weren't highly respected. Uh, they weren't known to be able to give a credible, uh, a credible testimony. Uh, their testimony wasn't valid in court. And so they quickly discounted these women. Now, the disciples, though, are to be held to something different. Yeah, they did discredit the women, but they also disbelieved the words of Jesus. Jesus had said that you would see him again. In fact, in Mark 14, 25, he says that when I am risen, I will meet you in Galilee. Now listen, this is when Jesus was with his disciples and he said to them, the shepherd will be struck down and the sheep will be scattered. They knew Jesus was a shepherd who was struck down. They knew they had scattered because they had scattered and yet they did not believe his word. So you see the women who believed and you see these disciples who did not believe that Jesus was raised. And then you have Peter. Peter's the third response. You see Peter, he runs to the tomb, he enters it, he sees it's empty, and he sees these grave cloths there. And it says he went home marveling. Now, did Peter believe? Well, I don't know. The word marvel, you know, kind of marvel that word, it's an ambiguous word. It, it can mean faith, or it might mean just kind of a wonderment over something you can't explain. He seems to be in the middle between these two groups. He seems to be in the gray area. We don't know if he believed or not. He will, of course, when he sees him, but he doesn't just yet. Well, what do you believe about the resurrection? I mean, do, do you really believe that he was raised from the dead? I mean, do, do you believe that, that he came out of the tomb? I mean, the question's the same. You're getting the same report the disciples got. So if we sit and look at judgment on, upon the disciples and say they should have known better, do we know better? Do we believe? Now, I don't think that the evidence that I'm going to give you, I don't think evidence can create faith. The Spirit of God has to do that. But I think evidence makes faith plausible. It, it, it gives reason. It gives justification. It gives explanation. In other words, what is the evidence that they were confronted with? Well, they were confronted with an empty tomb. That is not small evidence, that there was no body in the tomb. So the question is, where did it go? Well, there's a lot of people who have ideas. And, and a lot of people object to this idea that he was raised. And they have reasons to explain away the empty tomb. Uh, one of those would be what we call the swoon theory. This is my personal favorite. Uh, th th they believe, and people will make an argument, that in fact Jesus didn't die. What he did was he was just rendered unconscious from the whole ordeal of the cross. 
and that he was unconscious. He looked dead. They weren't scientists back then, and so you know they couldn't determine if he was really dead. But they threw him in the tomb, and the coolness of the air and the dampness that he he came back. He was revived, and and then he went off in obscurity, something to India. Well. I, you know what? It's a great theory in the sense of, I think you need a lot of faith to believe it. I, I, I think it demands amazing faith to believe that, that a man who would be scourged and beaten and then crucified and then hung on a tree for three hours and then thrown in a tomb could come back, move a stone, defeat a Roman guard, and then to go off to obscurity? I, I mean, that, it, it's a theory, but it takes a lot of faith to believe it. Uh, the, the other people come up with different thoughts. They, they say, well, the women got lost. The women didn't know where the tomb was. They, they just got lost. They went to the wrong tomb. It was empty, and that's how we got this idea of an empty tomb. But these women saw him die. They saw where he was buried. They knew where they were going. They knew where to go. They were from that town. They understood. Other people think, well, it was the Romans or, or the Jews, the, the leadership. They, they wanted to steal the body. But if that seems patently absurd because when Christianity began to grow and they all were opposing it, they could have just dragged his body out and said, here, worship your king. He's right here. He's all busted to pieces. Now, some want to say that the disciples stole the body. Well, to me, the record of the narrative doesn't really put the disciples in any position to want to steal the body, stash it somewhere. We're going to promote a false religion and we're going to suffer for it. You know, they haven't proved to be the most valiant and intelligent of men to date. So that seems to me to be a stretch too. Here's the argument. Here's what I'm saying to you, I guess, is simply this. That if we have to come up with all these reasons of his absence, what does it indicate? He wasn't there. The tomb was empty. It was empty. So the empty tomb is a significant argument. The church could have never grown in Jerusalem if his body was in Jerusalem. Okay, the second piece of evidence that we see in this text is that women are the eyewitnesses. Now, let me remind you, you know, women were discredited easily. As I said, in a Jewish court of law, women were not credible witnesses. They couldn't be brought to bear as eyewitnesses. And yet, in all the Gospels, it's the women that were the first eyewitnesses. Now, listen, if I'm going to try to fabricate a hoax or a story, you would not go and use women as your first witnesses because they'd be immediately discounted. In fact, they were. Celsus, a, a Roman writer, even uses that women were the first eyewitnesses. Therefore, he couldn't believe it. So why would he do that if it wasn't true? Why would they have said that? If you're going to fabricate something, you're not going to use women. I, I, I would say this, too, that in each of the Gospels, the women are named. So in other words, it indicates that the gospel writers are actually giving a historical account. They're not writing a fable. They're not writing legend. They're giving names so that you, if you were in Jerusalem, you could go ask them yourself. Go, go, go find out yourself. I, I would say this as kind of a sidebar. Do you see over and over how the Lord treats women? You know, we, throughout the history of humankind, uh, men with our power or strength have tended to discount and discredit women over and over again. They, often women get marginalized. They're joked about and they're treated as oftentimes less than men. But you see the Lord chooses women 
to be his first eyewitnesses. Christ is honoring women, male and female. He made them co-heirs of grace. We do well to honor women in our homes, in our church. We do well to honor them as he has honored them. Uh, the third piece of evidence is something significant as well. We cause it the cause-effect theory. Cause-effect, you know what I'm saying here. Nobody here believes that something can just happen, right? If something happens, if a, if a plate falls off a table, it didn't just happen, right? Everything has a prior cause. I remember trying this with my father about a dent in the car. And uh, this is where I, I learned early about the cause-effect. He said, well, how'd the dent get there? And I said, well, I don't know what happened. I don't think, it, I don't know how it happened. It just must have happened, Dad. He, he said, dents don't just happen. There's a, there's a prior cause to a happening. You know, if there's an effect, there is a cause prior to the effect. And so the argument here is simply this, is what would have changed these disciples from being cowards to courageous? What would cause all of them to suffer for something that everybody else is saying a lie. They're all suffering saying that Jesus has been raised. What would change? What would cause them to be different? Or what would cause the Sabbath to be moved from Saturday to Sunday? What would have caused that change? There had to be a prior cause. Or what would have caused the church to grow? How can the church have exploded across the Mediterranean basin within 30 years? What would have caused that? What was the cause? What was the resurrection? So here you have the resurrection of an empty tomb. You have these women first eyewitnesses. You have the explosion of the church. These are all evidencing. They are providing evidence, circumstantial evidence of this. But you know what? My big point is simply this. I think probably the strongest evidence is the fact, and if you're here today and you're kind of skeptical, you're like, ah, this is the one day the church celebrates the resurrection. I don't really buy it. You know, I'm more of a naturalist. I'm more of a, you got to show me if you're going to prove it to me. I want to point out to you that nobody thought he would be raised. The women didn't, and the disciples didn't. Nor did the Jew Jewish leadership, nor did the Romans. They set the guard up for purposes other than a resurrection, more for the disciples, or what they thought might happen. They didn't want anything tampered with it. Nobody believed it. At this time, nobody believed in a physical resurrection. The Greeks believed in an afterlife, that's true. The Greeks believed that the spirit would leave the body, and the body was a shell that you didn't want. It was a prison. It was like a peanut shell. Once you eat the peanut, you don't want the shell. That the, 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 This body is something to escape from. So the Greeks believed in an afterlife, but not a resurrection. The Jews... While they believed in a resurrection, it was a final resurrection. They never believed that a person would come forth from the grave, except on the last day, God would raise up all the dead, but he'd also transform all of creation. So they saw the resurrection as that final change. Nobody believed in a resurrection of an individual in the middle of human history. So there's no way they could have fabricated the idea. There's no way they would have come up with an idea of, hey, let's say Jesus rose from the dead. It wasn't even on the radar screen. So if they came up with it, it must have been because it happened. It happened. They wouldn't have believed. Nobody believed it. Do you believe the resurrection? I, I mean, all of us are confronted with the same evidence they were. We, hear, we heard the reports. There has never been a body found. What do we do with this? Well, the, 
The question still stands. If Christianity is false, if it's false, then you know what? Nothing changes in your life. Just go do what you want to do because it doesn't matter ultimately. Listen, you're going to be in a hole in a number of years and it won't matter. Ultimately, nothing you do will matter if there is no resurrection. So as Paul kind of mimicked and mocked, he said we might as well eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we may die. So be an Epicurean. Just go for it to the greatest degree that you can. But if it is true, then everything changes. I mean, everything changes. Let me give you a few implications of what might change. Number one, you have to change your view on life and death. You have to change that your death is not a final death, that your physical ceasing of life is only the beginning of a new type of life. Uh, Jesus will never die again. Death can never hold him. It has released its grip forever. I mean, he says this in Romans 6 as he looks on the resurrection. He says, we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Or he says to John on the island of Patmos, he says, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. It's true, he did. Behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. When you hold the keys, you own the place. He holds the keys. He'll never die again. Now, let me remind you, this is not a revivification. A revivification. I'm not stuttering. It's a word that means new life is put into a body that can keep living for a while longer. We see that in Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. Life was put into him by God, and he lived longer but still died. Death still had a grip on Lazarus. His life was only extended. That's not what's happening here. When Jesus is raised from the dead, he's raised new. He's the beginning of a new creation. He's moving us back into the garden. He's leading us back out of exile. This is a new body. This is a new life that he is inaugurating. This is the foretaste of all that we're going to have. He's the first fruits, Paul says. He's the example. He's the evidence. He's the fruit on the vine at the very beginning of the season that assures you of a full harvest that will come. This means that we don't have to fear death. This means that our lives are absolutely secure. This means that we can now take temporal risks because we face no eternal risk. We can take gospel risks. We can give ourselves to the sake of the gospel and never fear. You know, when I was preparing this sermon, we got a newsletter from a friend. He went to Chicago with us to train to go overseas. He went overseas um, with us at the same time, had a different ministry. We all came back. He continued to ministry in a different way. Um, but he just wrote us and announced that one of his sons, who have all four of his grandchildren, are going to a town in the Himalayas, a dangerous, uh, unreached town to preach the gospel. This granddad is losing both a son and all of his grandchildren and going to preach the gospel. And it makes sense to him. It makes sense, and it makes sense to me. It would be difficult, but it makes sense. Why? Because of the nature of this gospel, that he has been raised, that we have no threats. We can live knowing that true life is before us, not behind us, particularly those who are older, too. You think your best years were back then? No way. Your best years are ahead. It's ahead because of what he's done. But secondly, the, the, the resurrection also changes the way we look at suffering and sorrow. 
trials and adversity. I mean, Jesus Christ, we saw this last week, he died. Looks like the end, right? But out of it springs hope. The cross before the crown, suffering before satisfaction. I know many of you are struggling. You're going through deep, incredible tragedy. How can God ever make sense of this? How can God ever change this? Jesus is the example. He was raised from the dead. He will bring about your suffering in a way that you'll thank him for it. You know, one author talked about the scars on Jesus' hands. Have you ever wondered why he has the scars after the resurrection? We get new bodies, right? Everything changes, right? But he still has the scars. Why? Why does he maintain the scars? Other than to remind us that those things that looked like it spelled the greatest disaster produced the greatest gain. In other words, those hurts and those pains, they will be so redeemed that you will thank him for them. He will redeem them. He will use them in your life. The trials and struggles that you may be facing, he will use them such a way that you will thank him for them. That's what God does. It's the power of God taking the cross and making it a crown. Only God can do that. And that's what, the, that's what the resurrection shows us. That the trials you're in right now, you listen, they are no doubt difficult. I have no doubt about that. They're temporally challenging. But they'll be redeemed and you'll thank them. When you see those scars, you'll have your own scars. You'll have your own scars of suffering that you'll thank them for. The third thing that it changes, this resurrection changes the way you look at Jesus. You know, Jesus is declared clearly in this resurrection as being the unique son of God. There is no one like Jesus. All the kings of this world will bow the knee. All the gods of this world will bow the knee to him. You know, when Paul reflects on the resurrected Christ in Ephesians, he says, Christ, when God raised him from the dead, and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. That's where Christ is now. He's at the right hand. There is no other name by which you can be saved. There is no other God to which you can turn. There is no other path of salvation. There is no other way to God other than Christ. This is important if you're not a Christian here and you think that all these different roads lead up the same mountain. If the resurrection is true, there's only one road. It tends to be narrow. It tends to be challenging, but it's glorious. It also means that he's sovereign. He's sovereign now in this present world. In other words, if you're a Christian here, your life is not haphazard. It's not subject to the whims it's not subject to coincidences. He's sovereign. He's at the right hand. And Jesus Christ is not some whack-a-mole God that something comes up and he has to hit that, and something comes up and he has to hit that. He's sovereignly leading you through this life, even if it's going through a period of thorns or the valley of the shadow of death. He's sovereign. We can rest. We can take comfort in him. But, but, the resurrection also changes how you look at this world, really. The, the resurrection shows us that God is redeeming all things. In other words, he's making all things new. He's, he's righting wrongs. He will bring about justice for those who have experienced injustice. He will bring about peace for those who have suffered deeply. I mean, he's reversing the curse. So when Jesus came out of the grave... 
It's showing that God is going to now renew everything as in the same way he renewed Jesus Christ. I mean, can you imagine this? We think particularly of those who struggle physical issues, right? So many of you know the name Johnny Erickson Tata. She was a young woman at the time when she dove into the Chesapeake Bay. She broke her neck. She became a quadriplegic. It was the first service that she went to that the priest asked everybody to get on their knees to pray. And of course, she could not. And she began to weep. Next Christian conference she went to, uh, the preacher asked everybody to get on their knees to pray. And she began to weep again because she could not move from her chair. But then her, her weeping took a different dimension. She testifies in this way. She says, sitting there, I, am remi I was reminded that in heaven I will be free to jump up, dance, kick, and do aerobics. And sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. And this is what's going to happen to our bodies, but to all of creation. We want to look at this world differently because he's going to renew it all. Even if you're a skeptic here, even if you don't believe in the resurrection, you ought to want it. How else do those who have suffered such injustice ever get justice? Those who have suffered under the hands of evil and, and treachery and betrayal, how do they ever get their day? Do they have to go to the grave without a resurrection? Are you saying they're going to go to the grave never satisfied that wrongs were made right? N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar. He's written a hunkin' book on the resurrection. It's really a great treatment of the resurrection. And he writes this about the world mattering. He goes, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters. The injustices, the pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, that in, then it's only about me and finding my new dimension in a personal spiritual life. He says, but if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming our hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice and violence and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things. He's not prepared to tolerate it. He will bring change. So it changes the way we look at this world. It also changes the way you read the Bible. Do you notice that there is an implicit admonishment to the women when the angel said, don't you remember? Or how about when Jesus on the road to Emmaus says to the two disciples, how foolish and slow of heart are you to not believe all that was written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms? How foolish are you? In other words, it's all been said. Do you realize that the words of Jesus are true? They're true. That we don't read the Bible simply to gain information about God. We read the Bible so that our lives are changed. This is why we come together every Sunday morning. This is why we gather together to read and study the Scriptures. We want to read it and do it. We want to be like those women. And they remembered. And then they did it. That's how we want to be. And yet, 53% evangelicals, that is people who have a high view of the Bible, 53% of them 
think that they are able to determine what is right and wrong in morality. 53%. Yeah, we're, we're able to do it. No, we have our direction. We have our guidance. We have our instruction in the scriptures. And then the last thing I would say to you is this. The implication of the resurrection is simply that now you can see God as your father. You can see him as your father. Listen, I want to make sure you know here that that all of us have been born into sin. I mean, we're all sinners. We're all rebels. We're all moving away from God. I, I know kids are cute. I love them. They're precious. They're adorable. But every one of them is leaning away from God. We are not simply able to say that God is our Father until we come to faith in Christ. And this is what the resurrection proves. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he was saying, I accept your sacrifice on behalf of these sinners who have their faith in you. In other words, raising Jesus from the dead. Remember, Jesus died carrying our sins. We heard that on Friday. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That all of our sins were put upon the Son, and the Son suffered the judgment of God and died. Now being raised means that he's accepted his sacrifice. He's now satisfied with us. We're now justified. We're now innocent. And that's what Paul says in Romans. He says, he was delivered over to death for our sins, which you saw that on Friday, and he was raised to life for our justification. We've been just, if you are here today and you have faith in Jesus Christ as the one who has borne your sins and your shame and your guilt and has reconciled, you're justified. Your souls are cleansed. You don't have to drag the sins with you anymore. I run into too many Christians who say, I don't think God can forgive me. I've sinned way beyond measure. I want to assure you that Jesus has already, God has already given approval. Jesus suffered enough. His death was sufficient. You think you're a sinner? You may be. He's a greater Savior than you are a sinner. And, and those, you know, many others want to come up and say, well, I know God can forgive me. I can't forgive myself. Please don't buy into that lie. You don't have a higher standard of righteousness than God. If God says you're forgiven, you are forgiven. And we're called to walk in it. This is why Christians often lose the sense of joy. Because we just think God likes us, kind of. God accepts us-ish. No, it's full, it's complete, it's finished, it's done. We now need to walk in light of it. Don't let your lives of sadness betray the knowledge that you've been forgiven. So when you look at this text, th this is plenty of conversational material for you, even today. Look at the fact, there was an empty tomb. And there were various responses to it because they did various things with the evidence that was presented to them. Well, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond to it? I mean, if you're here again and you're a skeptic, I would love for you to ask those. I'm glad you're here. Uh, but I would encourage you to ask those that brought you, what do you do with it? You've got to do something. I mean, everybody will admit, even a hardline atheist, it's either true or it's not. If it's not true, then we're meant to be pitied for, fooling, for believing such a lie. But if it is true, then all eternity rests upon it. If it's true, all eternity is resting on what you do with this. So it's important to consider. Let's take a moment now and just do that. Ask God to reveal to us the grace we need to understand it and perhaps give thanks to him for being so gracious to us that he would, he would send one such as a son to save. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.